Chapter 19 of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Since Manila. On August 20th, seven days after the taking of Manila, I said in the course of a cable to the department, I trust that it may not be necessary to order me to Paris should very much regret to leave here while matters are in their present critical condition. As the one person who had been continuously in touch with the Philippine situation from the moment that it was precipitated, I considered it my duty to remain on the scene as long as there was any opportunity for service. Hostilities had ceased with the signing of the protocol, but the final terms of a treaty of peace remained to be negotiated. Our government had yet to decide whether or not to keep the Philippines. If we decided to keep them, there was the question of our policy of administration, the urgent importance of which was readily realized by one on the spot, while it was difficult to make it realized by those in Washington who had had no experience of Oriental countries. General Merritt was ordered to report to our delegates at the Paris Peace Conference bringing along with his own suggestions any that I had to communicate. Mr. McKinley, after sounding public opinion at home, decided not to haul down the flag, and Spain, in return for relinquishing sovereignty of the islands, was paid the sum of twenty millions. At the time, the delegates to the peace conference scarcely comprehended that a rebellion was included with the purchase. We were far from being in possession of the property which we had bought, Manila was only the capital city of the most important of a group of many islands, with many capitals, in all of which we must establish authority. With the native population welcoming us, this would have been only a formal task. But outside Manila, Aguinaldo was continuing to recruit his forces, while his agitators spread hostility to us throughout the archipelago. Gradually, our troops in Manila, under command of Major General E. S. Otis, who had succeeded General Merritt, were finding themselves invested by the insurgents, while they rested inactive under strict orders not to provoke a conflict. The Filipinos, particularly as we could have no official relations with the Aguinaldo dictatorship, could not believe in our good intentions. Mr. McKinley's proclamation of, quote, benevolent assimilation, fell on ears which had long since learned to distrust the beneficent and grandiloquent proclamations of which the Spanish were masters. It was a time for statesmanship if we were to avoid a conflict. As Washington seemed to be in the dark about the real situation on shore, I cabled on January 7, 1899, stating that affairs were very disturbed and that a small Quote, civilian commission composed of men skilled in diplomacy and statesmanship should be sent to adjust differences. At the same time, I wrote to Senator Proctor, expressing my fear that, despite General Otis's forbearance, we were drifting into a war with the natives. Quote, this appears to me an occasion for a triumph of statesmanship rather than of arms. Should the President decide to do as I suggest, I hope that you will be a member of the Commission. These people are afraid of us, Navy and Army, but would listen to you while they would not to us. They should be treated kindly, exactly as you would treat children, for they are little else. 
and should be coerced only after gentler means of bringing them to reason have failed. President McKinley acted promptly on my advice, Secretary Long cabling me on January 12th, quote, Sherman of Cornell, Worcester of Ann Arbor, Denby, late minister to China, go soon to Manila with instructions. They, with you and Otis, constitute commission. But in less than a month after their appointment, the growing anger of the natives had broken into flame. Now, after paying twenty millions for the islands, we must establish our authority by force against the very wishes of the people whom we sought to benefit. Once the early fighting with the insurgents was over and their capital at Malolos taken, the problem was one of successive occupation of towns and provinces against all the exasperations of guerrilla warfare, in which the navy could be of assistance only by protecting landing forces and the use of its small gunboats in shallow waters. In requesting the appointment of the Sherman Commission, I had taken the first step toward the development of a system of civil administration and the application of the principles of enlightened representative government in an Oriental country under the tutelage of a Western nation. It is for other pens to write of the later history of the Philippines, which its entail of vigilance, danger, and hardships for our troops, and of faithful service by our teachers and administrators, which have brought to the Filipino people the benefits of modern education and progress, and the opportunity for industrial development. On March 2, 1899, Congress had authorized the President, quote, to appoint by selection and promotion an admiral of the Navy, who shall not be placed upon the retired list except by his own application, and whenever such office shall be vacated by death or otherwise, the office shall cease to exist. President McKinley named me for this unique rank. Ten months had now elapsed since I entered Manila Bay. I had not once left it, even to take advantage of the brief climactic change to Hong Kong, which I was able to give all my officers. Whatever merit there was in untiring devotion to work, while there was work to do, I might rightfully claim as an expression of gratitude for the honor which my country had bestowed upon me. But I was weary and in poor health, while I could not help being deeply affected by the necessity of the loss of life and the misery which the pacification of the islands imposed. A year after the victory, confident that my presence was no longer necessary, the flagship weighed anchor, leaving the Asiatic squadron in command of Captain A. S. Barker, now Rear Admiral, retired, who had brought out the battleship Oregon. President McKinley had left it to me to choose my time of departure and my route homeward. From all parts of the United States had come requests for a journey across the country by rail. Our Inland cities seemed to be vying with one another in plans for magnificent reception. Towns, children, and articles of commerce were named after me. I was assured that nothing like the enthusiasm for a man and a deed had ever been known. But my health was unequal to any such triumphal progress. As one friend warned me, although I had survived the running of the batteries at Forts Jackson and St. Philip, the batteries of Port Hudson and the battles of Fort Fisher and Manila Bay, I could never survive the hospitality from the Pacific to the Atlantic coast. Therefore, I decided that I would land in New York, after cruising leisurely homeward by way of the Mediterranean. 
Now, when I entered a foreign harbor, it was with my four-starred flag in place of the Commodore's broad pennant, entitled to a salute of nineteen guns, and at any public function the commander of the Asiatic Squadron need not take second place. At Hong Kong, for the first time in a year, I enjoyed the luxury of sleeping on shore in a hotel free from ship's routine. After stops at Colombo and Singapore, where the British officials showed me every honor, and at the same time, with characteristic consideration, appreciated my desire for rest, I proceeded through the Suez Canal. My fondness for the Mediterranean, which had begun with my midshipman cruise, had never waned. In its bracing air I found the tonic that I needed. Many old associations were renewed, many old memories aroused, among them those of Farragut's tour. The Civil War had sent its admiral with the message of a nation reunited by force and the Spanish War had sent its admiral with the message of a country reunited in sentiment and become a world power. I could be as proud of the Olympia for the victory she had won as I had been as a midshipman of the Wabash, and where as captain of the Pensacola I knew that we had a navy of antiquated ships, now I knew that we had a navy of ships that were fully abreast of the progress in naval science. I was happy in the thought of duty done in a way to win praise, and at the thought of seeing my own country again, even if I were unequal to all the banquets that had been offered me. After calls at Trieste, Naples, Leghorn, and Villefranche, while I forewent all except formal official functions in my honor, I finally sailed from Gibraltar for New York early in September. Even the accounts in the newspapers, the invitations from cities and corporations and civic and patriotic organizations did not fully prepare me for the splendor of the attentions awaiting me. They were overwhelming. My career as a hard-working naval officer scarcely equipped me for a role as the central figure of uh, public applause. On the 30th of April, 1898, I had been practically unknown to the general public. In a day, my name was on everyone's lips. The dash of our squadron into an oriental bay 7,000 miles from home had the glamour of romance to the national imagination. I knew what to do in command of the Asiatic squadron, but being a flesh and blood and not a superman, it seemed impossible to live up to all that was expected of me as a returning hero. Had I died on the way across the Atlantic, there would have been an outpouring of subscription which would have promptly rebuilt the temporary arch in my honor in Madison Square in marble. If I were to feel later, when the uh, triumph and shouting had abated, that the people had misunderstood me, I knew that I had not misunderstood their thought and their exuberant pride over the way that the Asiatic Squadron had conducted offensive operations in the Philippine Islands. Dewey arches, dewey flags, and welcome dewey and electric lights on the span of the Brooklyn Bridge. The great city of New York made holiday. Its crowds banked the piers, the roofs, and Riverside Drive when the Olympic, leading the North Atlantic Squadron, which won Santiago, proceeded up the North River and they packed the streets for the land parade in token of public emotion, while the gold-loving cup which came to me with the freedom of the city expressed the municipality's official tribute. 
in the presence of the spectacle which was without equal my emotion was indescribable i was no less deeply affected when i stood on the steps of the state house at montpelier with the grounds filled with vermont home folks and when on the steps of the east front of the capitol i received from the hands of the president the sword of honor which congress had voted me on october fifth eighteen ninety nine my flag was hauled down from the olympia but i was to raise it again on the southern drill grounds for the manoeuvres when i had under my direction the most powerful fleet which we had ever mobilized up to that time a gratifying feature of the rank of admiral of the navy which congress had given me was that i was to remain in active service for life while i lived there would be work to do before the spanish war we had had no central advisory authority in determining our naval policy which was therefore subject to the recommendations of the different bureaus directly under the secretary of the navy with the result that there was not a harmonious purpose we had been making our appropriations without a proper regard for their expenditure to the definite end of developing a fighting force as an effective whole we had been building ships without regard to homogeneity now it was my pleasure not only to see the recommendations which i had made to secretary tracy carried out by the concentration of our battleships in home waters but by the establishment of the general board which was to prepare war plans recommend the types and armament of ships for the annual building program and act as a clearing-house for all questions of naval policy i was made president of the board a position which i still occupy and where i am in daily association with some of the finest minds in the service naturally my new assignment required my presence in washington the city with which i had the most associations and where i preferred to settle for many years during my residence in washington before going to the east mrs mildred mclean hazen and i had been friends upon my return from the east she did me the honor to become my wife to her companionship i owe my happiness in later years among all the tokens of the honors that the people paid me the simplest one is valued as much as the costly loving cup and i rejoice in having been able to pass the great milestone of threescore and ten in vigor still able to appear at my office every morning as a naval officer on the active list who can keep in touch with the living science of naval warfare in a responsible position and whose experience in two wars and through many stages of naval progress i trust is of some value my good friend the late john hay said that one could not boast of his triumphs in love and diplomacy now, this is true of the work of the general board war which would bring a test of its results will find unless i am mistaken in my knowledge of our officers men and ships the spirit of jones perry and farragut still dominant with the certainty that our commanders will go into action not only with the sufficiency of ammunition but with the confidence that they are part of a well-prepared force End of the Autobiography of George Dewey